from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Now playing here at the Film Society, Ryuchi Sakamoto, Koda, is a documentary five years in the making from director Steven Shibble. Few artists have as diverse a background as Ryuchi Sakamoto, composer, performer, producer, and environmentalist. His work has spanned genres and forms, from pioneering electronic music as a member of Yellow Magic Orchestra, to crafting globally inspired rock albums, classical compositions, minimal and ambient music, and over 30 film scores. Using footage from Sakamoto's life and career, Shibble's film is an intimate portrait of both the artist and his creative process. Following its opening night screening, Ryuchi Sakamoto and Steven Shibble joined writer Sasha Freer-Jones to talk about the film. Let's go to that now. talked a little bit um, right before we came down about this, but between this movie and uh, your album Async and also the Tarkovsky movie, Solaris, or several of them, not just that one, um, there's a sense of, of space and of slowness and of silence, and I maybe would have recognized that if someone had said it to me, but having it all in front of me, I thought this is something that maybe was a topic between you or a feeling between you because it's it's there through and in the revenant too not a fast not a breakneck movie exactly so there's a lot of deliberation in what we i think what we just saw probably um well we didn't talk about that uh but um, probably um mr shibble was influenced by my pace i i mean this is not nature of myself and probably you you must have been influenced by uh what i do what i behave and also uh the process of my you know uh music making uh, why yeah i mean definitely because i guess one of the things i'm very fortunate to be able to do is to observe and to learn from the subject I'm following, in this case, Mr. Sakamoto, and to try to kind of express in a way that is fitting to what he does. I mean, I, I kind of, in this film, I, I saw myself as a, like a portrait artist of sorts. That I, I thought I was making a portrait piece about somebody. And, you know, and then I wanted the canvas to be something that fits well with Mr. Sakamoto's thinking and expression. So I was very much influenced by his music, of course. Um, but also, I think in terms of the pacing as a filmmaker, I really wanted to um, slow down for this film because we started in 2012 in the aftermath of Fukushima. And you know we're both originally from Tokyo. I was born and raised there, so was Mr. Sakamoto. But I, I felt that my world was completely turned upside down. And um, I mean, if you think about it, people are interesting. Like um, We tend to forget when things don't happen, but Tokyo was nearly evacuated completely like it was like very close to you know having to evacuate a whole city you know um our hometown was almost you know inhabitable but 
fortunately, that didn't happen. So we choose to forget. But I'm one of those people who couldn't. And 14 million people, right? Yeah, 14 million people. And that whole city was nearly abandoned. So it made me see the landscape of my hometown completely differently. It made me want to just slow down and say, hey, what's really happening to us? And so that kind of influenced my pacing as well. And maybe that's how you kind of slowed down for async too. I don't know, but. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, yes, I decided to make this album as an, an, an imaginary uh, soundtrack for imaginary Tarkovsky movie. But also, um, uh, during the process of um, making this album, I was very into Bresson, too. Oh. Robert Bresson. Very slow, slowness. Um, well, not exactly slow, but I don't know, quiet, very subtle, and not too dramatic. Um, all that influenced me so much. And that, well, in a way, Tarkovsky and Bresson shared something, maybe. Not only the pace, but um, I don't know, the, the eye, eye to, um, to see how the world is rotating, moving, and how people are doing, behave, behaving. <clears throat> uh, of course, they, uh, the method, their methods are very different, but um, I, I feel something very close between them. And actually, um, it's, a, it's a crazy thing was, I, I, I went to Cannes Festival, first time in 83, uh, for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, with uh, all the gangs of uh, Oshima, Mr. Oshima. In the same year in Cannes, Tarkovsky and Bresson were also invited, and they were really? yeah, those two great, the greatest filmmakers were there and on the same stage, and they were given the special awards by Orson Welles. And you were all there at the same time. Yeah, but I didn't meet them. But uh, I was just walking, walking by. <laughs> It's, it's, so 83 was so crazy. That's a good year. Yeah, amazing. There's a way in which both of them do something. You mentioned in the film when you're sitting at the piano mm. and talking about eternity and sustain. There's yes. a way in which they both sustain in their movies shot to shot. They, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the shot of the candelabra, like it's, it's sustaining, it's floating, it's sustaining, it's there. Yeah. You know, things are on the screen and they stay there for as long as they need to be there. Mm. In the same way that on async, the sounds just, you know, nothing flits through. Like things appear and they resonate for a while and then you eventually get to the next thing, mm. which I love, but you know, I think probably a lot of people love too. Maybe you should talk about the, the pace of your film a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned sustaining sounds, but I really, um, wanted to tell a story through sound as much as possible as well. And when we were editing the film, we would often kind of focus on the sound aspects. And we would try to treat everything in the um, audio track 
musically. Like even people yelling into bullhorns, like we kind of wanted to use that musically in some sort of way. And I think it's partly because I knew Mr. Sakamoto was influenced by John Cage and you know, he incorporated sampling into his work a lot in the 80s and so forth. But we even kind of called the, the system, the operating system of our um, editing, you know, computer, John Cage, like the login, yeah. And then so we kind of treated our editing process is this kind of massive sampling process. And we would kind of lay out the sounds like we were creating some kind of a mixtape. You know, and we really wanted to build the audio because I think one of the reasons is because I felt that Mr. Sakamoto was kind of gaining awareness of the world in some way through sound, through hearing the world. And you've often said that listening is like making music in some ways. And, um, and I wanted the film to incorporate that. And I wanted to really kind of slow down and to be able to enjoy the intricacies of sound. It's difficult when you have a fast pace. I think it's much better when you have a slower pace so that people can start to really look at things at a more microcosmic level. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. Probably I asked him twice, uh, kind of pushed him not to make this, this film too dramatic. In in what in what sense? Um, I just hate uh, very dramatic documentaries. <laughs> At the same time, you always say to me that I was lucky that you became ill with cancer because. It's and but uh, <laughs> yes, when I was diagnosed, you know, I I thought to myself, um, well, he's got a very dramatic uh, moment in his film, <laughs> so. Since our premiere at Venice, you've always been saying you, were, you really liked it, right? You were happy. Yes. Yeah, but, um, yes, but no, I mean, one day, so, I mean, I think many of you are fans, but I mean, it, it goes without saying that Mr. Sakamoto has had an amazingly prolific career with so many different aspects and facets, right? So uh, we tried to put a lot of history into the film, to be honest, and it just wasn't fitting, and it got to the point where it was so difficult to try to fit in more information that I, I had a severe back, backache. And, um, and he introduced me to a great chiropractor. And then I, and I, the editing was so hard that I had a backache. And the last person that I wanted to run into was Mr. Sakamoto, but he happened to be there. And we, had a, we really had an elevator conversation. Like we were on the elevator and he just told me like straight up, he said, Stephen, make it short. <laughs> Make a short film. Short and sweet is best. Less is more. And it was the perfect advice that I really needed. And my back was healed shortly thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my um, belief. Uh, faith. Less is more. And that's, that's what's said by... That's, that's the expression by my, one of my gurus, uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim. The, the father of Bosonova. The Bosonova is the, the beauty, beautiful art of, uh, you know, being less. I mean, minimali minimalism. Jobim is a, an excellent hero. Or that's, I don't think that's the word you said, but it's in there. Um, it's making me think, uh, when we were talking about sustain, I didn't think about this until I saw the movie this time, but the movie, I think one of the first moments is of the, the Geiger counter in on the train. 
I don't know if it's a Geiger counter. It's a thing that's measuring radiation, I think. And um, I mean, if you're talking about sustain, I mean, radiation kind of has everything beat. I mean, that that's that's a long, long sustain. And um, I, because I'm in love with your music and this specific, uh, specifically this album, my mind goes to that, and then I see Tarkovsky, and and then it's easy to forget. Oh, wait a minute. The foundational moment of this movie is this, this disaster. This you know, when you're talking to that. I mean, it's not very dramatic. You're very good at making dramatic things not dramatic. So you talk to the the man, and you say like, "Oh, you saw this?" And he's like, "Yeah, black wall of water." And then you can see what I think is left, maybe, of the trees. I couldn't see what we were supposed to focus on, but I thought, "Whoa, that's that's a pretty heavy thing to just be talking with somebody about." Like, "Oh, you're alive, but you saw a." black wall of water coming towards you and then as if that wasn't enough then there's a nuclear disaster like imagine we have sandy and then on top of that yeah. you know there's yeah. i don't even well, know what three would be like three that. accidents at the same time three three reactors right. yeah and but no the in fukushima itself but the, there there are three accidents in fukushima Number one, three within, reactors within yeah. the entire yeah. That that's that's because um, um, uh, uh, Chernobyl Chernobyl was only one reactor accident. The Fukushima had three. It's three. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and still, no under control at all. What what is the situation now? I, I I don't know. You probably know more. I mean, it's 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 never under control. I mean, I, I don't know the exact status right now, but I could tell you this. I mean, when we went together in 2014, we were there filming on the third anniversary of the disaster. So we were there on March 13th, 2014. So only three months before I was diagnosed, I, I went there. Maybe I, sh I shouldn't. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kidding. And <laughs> bad I mean, joke. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, I don't know how many of you have seen a nuclear power plant before. I mean, it, it's I'm I'm one of the things I'm fascinated by is the things societies tend to hide that you don't see, whether they're concentration camps or nuclear reactors. I mean, the first thing is like they were huge. I mean, they look to me like pyramids. I mean, they're gigantic contraptions that I think the people who run these things don't want you to really see because it's insane. And what and what happened to me was I, I was following a musician and I signed up for a music documentary and little did I know we were going to end up in a contaminated zone, you know, and then, and then we put on hazmat suits and we went, like we were literally just feet away from the plant. And the scariest thing that I experienced was that you cannot feel the danger because nuclear contamination, you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't taste it. The five senses don't give you any signs of the risks that you're facing. And that to me was the most shocking thing. It's actually quite peaceful, the beach. So beautiful, you know. Uh, we, we were looking at the beautiful um, countryside rice fields in Fukushima. So beautiful, uh, birds, birds are singing and everything, except no, no residents, no people. <laughs> So and, and that silence really hit me in a way that I think ultimately made me want to somehow be able to feel through the process of filmmaking. And that might have something to do with the slow pace for me as well. 
and you know sustaining shots for a long time. It's it's somehow trying to get into connection with the voidness, if you will, of the calamity. And the half life of plutonium is what like a, over a million years or something. It's insane, right? Uh, some kind of uranium, you know, um, gets half of the radiation in 15 billion years. And there was that stuff on the ground when we were there, so. I did worry um, in the scene where Mr. Sakamoto is reading, um, at first I think you say no pulse, and then you read something else that, you know, all these people are dead, and you're talking about how close you are. I was wondering why you didn't have a mask on, but I mean, maybe you, you didn't need one, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I was worried. I'm okay now, but I mean, <laughs> every, everything seems to be okay. Um, but uh, one thing that, as you know, as an American, as a New Yorker, I don't know about Japan. There are many things I don't know, but the context of being an artist and also being openly political in public is—I don't know if that's common. If many people do that um, here, we have lots of people sort of thinking they're political and, and talking a lot about it, but. It seems that it's different in Japan, but I'd, I'd love to know what it really is. Here in America, it's very common, right? Uh, all the celebrities or, or famous people, popular people, uh, I wait. The, I heard that there's an um, agency for celebrities uh, to to show the most updated uh, causes, like um, for animal or. Um, tropical forests, or you know, they, <laughs> so the actresses and actors you know, um, call those agency. Uh, which one is the most you know, trendy cause I should I should support? Some kind of. Well, I'm joking. Sorry, <laughs> wasting time. Um, in Japan, it's not very common. Uh, so. Yeah, I I get a lot of bashing, uh, and the, the majority of Japanese people say, uh, "So you're a musician, just do music, <laughs> shut shut your mouth up," something like that. So I haven't I haven't seen the Twitter for like five six years now <laughs> because uh, it's trash. And <laughs> um, um, you know they 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 say anything they they want to say, so um, some people say I'm I'm from Korea. <laughs> You're from where? Uh, Korea. Okay. I mean, there's like a kind of like everywhere else. There's like a right wing sentiment. Yeah. Okay. In Japan, just like most democratic I mean, countries now, unfortunately. So I think. That's yeah. Part anything of it. I say against the administration, the government. Mm. You know, the right wing, well, not exactly right wing, it's a kind of majority of uh, people on the net, you know, um, <clears throat> say something like that. They want to see your birth certificate. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't have to, but... Uh, <laughs> no, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm okay, because I, I don't see, um, I don't look at the Twitter. <laughs> Very good idea. Yeah. <laughs> But, and but, okay. uh, I don't look at the uh, TV news, so because it's, it's so stressful to see news. Um, well, here in America too, but uh, in Japan too. 
And uh, much before the guy became the president, your president, uh, we have had um, uh, Mr. Abe, Prime Minister. Uh, in the year the, uh, 2012, we, the year we started the shooting, you know, he became the Prime Minister second time. And that changed the, uh, that made, you know, that pushed the momentum of democracy away from Japan in that year. So in, there's a, a, a moment in the film when you say the, the social and political situation has gotten much worse. Is, mm. that, is that roughly what you're talking about in that yes, moment? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and, you know, also the nuclear issue was kind of suppressed more. You know, the Tokyo Olympics are happening two years from now. And um, I guess you could say that it's a bit of an inconvenience. So, um, yeah. so that was a part of it. But I mean, I could also say this. I mean, I was following and observing Mr. Sakamoto that year. And for example, the day before the elections, you know, I wanted to figure out a way to, sh you know, shoot this and record it. I never did, but like, you would open a major newspaper and you would have like a full page ad for the Liberal Democratic Party, which is now in rule. And Mr. Abe would have a full page shot of him. And then two pages later, there was a full page ad for solar power. A solar power company actually had Mr. Sakamoto <laughs> as well. So, I mean, that was the dynamic. I mean, Mr. Sakamoto is, you know, very well known in Japan, of course. So, like, there, there was, you know, I mean, I think the friction was there because it did evoke fear to a certain extent. And also, um, after Mr. Sakamoto became very vocal in Japan about the nuclear issue, two former prime ministers, Mr. Koizumi and there was another person, right, who actually, they, they spoke out and they said that the real patriotic thing to do is to do something about this mess that we've created. And so I don't think, you know, he's very humble, of course, you know, he's such a wonderful, mm -hmm. gentle man. But I, I think, I mean, I saw you suffer a lot through all of this, but I think there was also a, a certain effect that occurred, even though, unfortunately, the election results were not, you know, very favorable in terms of the issue. But maybe we should Oh, yes. Um, I think we're going to move now to questions from the audience. I don't know if we have a microphone for, oh, I guess that microphone is for people. Um, Danny, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, there's a floating mic, I'm sorry. Um, ignore me. So if uh, people have questions they would like to pose, now is your time to pose those questions. All right, so the mic will come down to you, I believe. Oh, this is such an honor to be in front of you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for such an intimate portrayal of your life and sharing that with us um, for both. It was, it was wonderful. Um, my question is, do you ever get creative blocks? And if so, what do you do? Creative what? Sorry, like a cre <laughs> I'm sorry. Like when you compose, when you're writing, um, do you ever get creative, like get into a rut and like not get kind of blocked in like what, not know what to write or don't have any ideas? Well, many times in the past. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, yeah, um, like um, one example was, um, uh, I was sitting in front of the keyboard, my keyboard, you know, for four months, not to play a note, just uh, looking at the <laughs> keyboard. And then um, after that, after four months, the fir first thing came to my mind was 
and it became uh, the song Bibon Aozora, which was used in the battle by Inaritu at the end of the movie. So it was worth just waiting, <laughs> sitting <laughs> for four months. And yeah, I've done many, many, many times like that. Thank you. <laughs> Don't be shy, raise your hand. There we go. We got one down here too, and one up there. Hey, how are you? Um, when you when you were composing for The Revenant, or like when you compose for most movies, how much do you know about the actual story in the movie and how much guidance you're given when you're uh, composing the score for it? Um. I was working on that film for almost six months. And I saw the film maybe five times a day. <laughs> and, um, but in the beginning, um, I started working. The film was not completed. So uh, the, the famous bear attack scene in the, the first half of the movie. The bear was a um, green human. <laughs> 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 Something like that, here and there, you know, green and blue and every, everything, like some uh, wolf doll was running <laughs> with a cable or something like that. But then, and toward the end of the process, you know, it's, it's getting shape, you know. But it wasn't fun for me, but, you know, because <laughs> looking at the green human bear, you know, uh, I, I had to, you know, use my imagination, what kind of sound, what kind of music I should go with, and <laughs> it's, it's like that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Right here. Oh, okay. Sorry, I should have used the mic. Hi. Um, so for your album Async, um, so I've listened to it a lot, but that album, or like a lot of albums in the past, like I think he had one single a while ago. I'm not sure when it was. It was like Plankton or something like that. Plankton? Plankton. Yeah. Plankton. Yeah. Um, the 12-inch album. Yeah. 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 Um, like, those, a lot of those, like, that music, and especially in this um, documentary, you talked a lot about, like, your incorporating nature into your music and, like, going out into nature and observing all of the sounds that come from nature. I mean, and then you added on top of that electric sounds and like man-made sounds. So like when you think about when you put those together, like there's somewhere in between like where those two meet, there's, you know, it's hard to explain, like hard to describe, but like what feeling would you attribute to that? <sighs> I'm always in the contradiction. You know, if I, fully enjoy listening to the sound of the nature. You know, I don't have to compose my music. Um, 
And I advocate like uh, open your ears, open your ears, you know, uh, just listen to the sound of nature to other people. So I'm kind of um, um, losing my, my job. <laughs> um, but um, on the other hand, I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm a composer, and I have a, a big desire to make my own music. So that's always the question, and there's no answer for me yet, but um, maybe I'll, I, I'll keep doing in many ways to find the, the right spot to combine them my desire and the beauty of nature. <laughs> Thank you. Right. I think we have time for, sadly, one more. Now, this is like that Solomonic moment. Um, oh, my Lord, there's four different people. What? Like, this isn't fair. I don't know. Just all ask at once. It'll be polyphony. It'll be beautiful. Oh, I don't know. The person, I don't know. That's good. I thank you very much for joining us. It was an excellent film, and glad to have you. I was wondering why Coda. Right, I, right, yes, yes. It's a big question, and I argued with him. <laughs> and uh, so we talked, and we thought about that, and uh, I presented some other substitutes, and, uh, but I lost. Yeah, um, well, it's a long story, but when I, so you have to imagine, um, so in 2012, I, I reached out to him through his office. I created a proposal, and the title for the film at that point was Coda, actually. Already? It was very, yeah, it was Coda. And, you know, um, and the reason I chose that is because, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I don't have musical expertise, but, you know, I understood that typically there's a key change or some kind of tonal shift at the end of a symphonic piece. And I felt that, you know, things had changed quite a bit back home and I wanted to express something related to that. I also felt that, you know, the whole world seemed like it was in like a final phase of some kind, or at least there was a dramatic shift that was happening and I wanted to kind of say something about that. And since Mr. Sakamoto's a music artist, I figured why not? And that was our kind of like um, working title for a while. And this was before the illness, of course. Um, and, you know, and it was just a working title. Uh, we tried to figure out other ones. Um, and then, yeah, we, we had, like, it was about a year ago when we finally decided what we were going to do with the title. And it got to the point where our distributor in Japan started sending us god-awful titles. Like, you know, they were saying, we're releasing this movie within the year, you know, last year, 2017. We need a title. How about this? And it, it started to get really scary. Um, <laughs> And we had a conversation. Um, I came up with titles that were movie title-like, which were not quite, it didn't feel honest. And we ultimately decided, and I know you didn't want to, but we just kind of decided to stick with what we had. Um, but um, it, it was also another important aspect is all along as we were making this film for years, I wanted to end with music. You know, I wanted the tale of the film to be purely musical with a new musical creation that he made. So that, that was the reason why I chose Coda. And we really couldn't come up with anything that worked better. Well, <clears throat> I decided to think this way. This is Coda of first movement. And the second movement has already started. That's 
And that's actually <laughs> true, right? In music, like every movement has a coda, right? It's often t sometimes mm. or. <laughs> Could be, possible. But this was sort of like a coda. Oh, you mean to the? Well, yeah, to like the movie. Yeah, like so. There are many codas, many. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't nearly as elegant as that. Sadly, there's another. I mean, it's not sad that there's another movie, but sadly, we have to stop because there's something coming in. But I just want to thank everybody for coming out and uh, Richie Sakamoto and Stephen Chipper. The Close Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>